Now, my mission in life is to make people laugh. So I tell them all kinds of jokes. For instance, there is a story, which was actually a true story, about a girl who stayed in a hotel that had a flat roof. On Alakiski Chronicle, we feature interesting stories and people who shape our local history. Welcome back to another episode of Alakiski Chronicle. Now, this is a podcast that we do with the local museum here in Tarentum. And Alakiski Chronicle explores and showcases topics celebrating the cultural, industrial, and ethnic heritage of the Allegheny and Kiskaminikis River Valleys in southwestern Pennsylvania. And today on the podcast, we have Andrew Medeski, who is a Polish immigrant to this area, and he has a wonderful, fascinating story that we think that our community needs to hear. So welcome, Andrew, to our podcast. So, Andrew, you were born in Poland. That's correct. I was born and raised in the city of Lwów, L-W-O-W, which is um, a city about the size of Pittsburgh in southeastern Poland. However, the city right now is part of Ukraine because Poland lost a large part of its eastern part, which was given to Russia. And what year were you born? I was born in 1921. In other words, I'm an original baby boomer after the First World War. My parents were married in 1920, right after the war, because they were both in the Polish army. Uh, I lived in six different countries before I came to the United States. And um, what happened was that in 1939, I just graduated from high school in May, And as you know, Hitler attacked Poland in September. At the same time, we didn't know that Germany and Russia have signed an agreement that they divided Poland in half. The Russians invaded Poland from the east, while the Germans invaded it from the west. And they divided Poland into two sectors. We were in the eastern part, and therefore, we were in the Russian section. When the Russians entered Poland, they started systematically eliminating the educated classes and part of the resistance movement. And the system they had was that they would come to somebody's house at midnight, arrest everybody there, take the father and take him to prison and kill him there and take everybody found in the house to Siberian labor camps. Young, old, grandparents, no matter what. In fact, my first wife, who was 13 years old, was taken to a Siberian camp as an enemy of the people. Now, we lived in a suburban part of uh, the city. And when there was beginning of the war, the Polish artillery set up guns in the backyard of our house, and we were evicted from there. 
At that time, we thought that it was very bad, but actually it was something that saved my life because um, the KGB, at that time it's called NKVD, the Russian secret police, was after my father by name because he was vice president judge of the District Court of Justice. However, when they came to look for us, they couldn't find us because we were evicted. So we went to live with our relatives in downtown Lvov. And before they could find us, we escaped. We escaped because um, the Russians and the Germans made agreement that um, they would repatriate the people, refugees from the West of Poland, who ran away from an approaching German army and found themselves now in need of going back to their homes. So we pretended being a refugee. We got some false papers for that purpose. And um, we succeeded in getting through to the German part of the occupation. There was one miracle after another how God protected us in doing so. I'm not going to go into detail because of the lack of time. So we found ourselves in Warsaw where my mother had her sister and we stayed in Warsaw for the rest of the duration of the war. When I got to Warsaw, I worked for the Department of Street and Sanitation, big garage, taking care of 300 garbage trucks. Actually, it was very good for me to do that for two reasons. First of all, I wanted to be an engineer and therefore getting acquainted with them the truck engines was very interesting to me. So I worked there first as an apprentice and then later on as a motor mechanic. The second advantage of doing it was that I had an identification as working for the Department of Street and Sanitation. And that protected me more or less from being arrested and deported a lot of other young people were arrested and sent to concentration camp where they eventually died because the Germans believed that a large number of them were in a secret Polish army. And this is what actually happened to me too. I joined the secret Polish army. At that time, I lived a more or less normal life my only objective at that time was to train and prepare myself for an uprising against the Germans. In uh, 1944, the Russian army was getting closer to Warsaw and the German army was retreating from Russia. When the Russians were about two miles from Warsaw, they encouraged the secret Polish army to start an uprising. In fact, the Polish government in London thought that it might be a good idea for us to start the uprising before the Russians came to liberate Warsaw from the Germans 
declared Warsaw to be a capital of free Poland. Of course, that was easier said than done. There were about 12,000 German people in Warsaw at that time, which later increased to about 40,000. Our Polish secret army was about 40,000 theoretically, but in actual fact, at the time of the beginning of the uprising, there were only about 23,000 there. And the uprising was supposed to start on the 1st of August, 1944, at five o'clock in the afternoon. That was what the commander-in-chief of the secret Polish army, General Bur Komorowski, ordered. At that time, the Germans were pretty well prepared for it. Just before that, they told, they made an order that 100,000 young men from Warsaw have to go outside of the city to build fortification against the approaching Russian army. Actually, it was just an excuse because they wanted to get the Polish young men out of the city because they expected the uprising. Fortunately, hardly anybody went there, so we stayed in the city. The uprising actually started a little earlier than planned because the Germans discovered the secret armory and the shooting started earlier than five o'clock in the afternoon. Then the commander of the secret army, General Burkomorowski, decided that the best thing to do will be to remove the Polish secret army from the city to nearby woods of Campinos and then reorganize the whole army, get additional armament and return to the city. Actually, my group didn't go because uh, the commander of that group in which I was decided not to leave the city, which actually might have been the better idea. So for about three days, we waited until the whole force came back, and then the uprising started in a serious way. The first day, we attacked a number of different German positions, which was actually a failure because it was too much to handle. And then from then on, we started digging trenches and making barricades. The idea was essentially to prevent the German tanks from driving around the city. However, by that time, what the Germans did was to divide the whole city, which covered about 54 square miles, into sectors. And they controlled the connecting arteries between the sectors by having their tanks moving there back and forth. And then they started systematically destroying one sector after another. Now, our problem was the lack of armament and the lack of ammunition. Actually, about only four to six percent of our units have arms. As one of my friends who had a good sense of humor said, he was the platoon of verbal persuasion. 
Anyway, the arms which we had were of different sources. Some of them were the remaining arms from 1939 war, which were buried. In fact, some of them were buried in cemeteries, presumably containing bodies and not arms. Well, we were able to dig them up then and use them. There was another problem here because during the conspiration, of course, everything was very secret. So sometimes there were only few people who knew where the arms and ammunition were buried. And it happened that our command in the sector in which I was, which was called Jolibos, the command was actually sitting practically on underground lot of ammunition and arms which were not discovered until 1957, well after the uprising. Anyway, some of the arms we got from Germans when we fought with them. Some of the arms were dropped by the Polish planes which flew from Great Britain and they flew over enemy territory with a 2,500 miles uh, round trip. A lot of them were shot down by the Germans. Some of the arms were actually made by us in the secret factories and primarily they were grenades and so-called Molotov cocktails. The Molotov cocktails were bottles of gasoline with uh, a paper around the bottle which contains chemicals which caused the gasoline to ignite after the bottle was broken. So if you threw a bottle, for instance, on a tank, it um, covered the tank with flames and this was one of the ways that could possibly destroy the tank. And um, grenades were very often made from unexploded German bombs or shells. And a lot of Polish people lost their lives disarming these and using the explosive for grenades. Anyway, according to simple calculations, the uprising should have lasted only two days based on the amount of arms that we had. In actual fact, the uprising lasted 63 days. That's when it started on the 1st of August and ended up on the last day of September. As I mentioned before, I was unbelievably protected by God during the uprising, before and after it. For instance, I was once on patrol in a park and I heard something in the bushes. The bushes parted and a huge artillery shell slid on the ground and came to rest next to me. It never exploded. It was a dud. Another case. I was behind a barricade made of cobblestones. I was in a trench and I had a, an anti tank gun, which was actually dropped by the Russians. And that gun was like a very long rifle, 
which actually didn't do anything to the tank, but it let the tank know where you were. <laughs> anyway, I was trying to shoot at the tank. The tank fired at the barricade on the left side of me and pushed all the cobblestones into the trench. If it fired once more, I wouldn't be here. You see, there was plenty of dust then, so I started systematically cleaning up my gun. Instead of firing at me for no reason at all, the tank turned around and drove away. Another miracle. Another miracle, I was sent on a special assignment somewhere else, away from my platoon. At that time, the Germans were shelling our positions and all the buildings in, in our uh, sector with incendiary shells, which contained magnesium. Magnesium burns at a very high temperature and cannot be extinguished only with um, sand, not with water. My platoon went to put some sand on it when one of the shells hit the attic of the apartment building when they were billeted. Something unusual happened because another shell fell exactly the same place as the first one, burnt my friends to the point when I came back, I only found black torsos. The legs and the arms were burned off completely. If I was there, I would be among them. So time after time, I was protected during the uprising. In another case, I was standing on a balcony of the apartment building where the Germans were shelling us with mortar shells. In city fighting, the mortar shells are the most dangerous because they have a high trajectory and they fall behind buildings. A mortar shell fell in the backyard of the apartment building, exploded, and a huge shrapnel just grazed the top of my head, put a little scratch on it. Another miracle. Well, Germans eliminated one sector after another using bombs, explosive, and so on. Every sector was levered, people were killed. In fact, a lot of civilian population was killed. In, in the final analysis, one quarter of a million of civilian populations were killed. We were running out of room to bury them. About 55% of the secret army was killed too. What was that like for you as a young man to see so much death and destruction? Well, here's another blessing. Somehow I went through it without a serious traumatic effect on, on me because somehow I was sure that I'll survive and the God protected me, me in that sense that this terrible carnage of the whole thing did not affect me in, in any bad way. There was only one case which I'll tell you about. I was on a special assignment walking through the courtyard of one of the apartment buildings, and there was two of our soldiers 
there were 11 or 12 year old, a boy and a girl, and they were repairing the field telephone cable, which was broken by a previous mortar shell. I stopped and talked to them for a few minutes and then walked away. When I was only maybe 200 feet away, another shell fell and killed both of them. I was so shaken, you might say it was shell-shocked, that I had to go to the nearest basement, sit on a bench, and for about an hour I was completely numb. I just couldn't move. And then after that, I got up and continued on my assignment. That was the only time that I really was shocked. And thank God it didn't leave any permanent effect on me. Well, the problem was that we were not recognized by the Germans as a regular army. And everybody who was injured and caught by the German was shot, executed. They had orders not to take prisoners. So we knew that we either win or be killed, no matter what. Time after time, sector after sector, the Germans leveled everything. Finally, the time came to Jolibos, where I was. I was in a burning building. I had to help evacuate some of the tenants of that building from the upper floors because it was burning. And then I realized that the time has come for me to die because I knew that I'll either die in a battle or if I'm injured or wounded, the German will just shoot me. And we are 23 years old, feeling that this is the last day of your life is not very pleasant. However, in the evening, or actually afternoon of that day, we were told that there will be half an hour ceasefire. So I used that half an hour ceasefire to get in a better position with my rifle and so on. Then the commander of our sector said that the commander in charge of the whole Warsaw uprising was negotiating with the Germans. And the Germans agreed that if we surrender, we will be treated as a regular army and therefore taken prisoners of war. So that was another miracle that God gave me. So from there on, we went to the trains which took us to Germany, to prisoners of war camp. I was in three camps, Altengrabov, Zandbostel, and Lübeck. And I was eventually liberated by the British in Lübeck. From then on, I had a choice, either to return to Poland, which at that time was under Russian occupation, or otherwise go to Italy when there was a second Polish corps fighting along the Allied forces. Since I knew the Russians well enough, and we, of course, escaped from 
pursuit of the secret police, I didn't want to go back to this kind of a regime. And very sadly, because this way I couldn't be with my parents. By the way, there was another blessing that my parents also survived the uprising. And they were evicted from Warsaw, and they went to stay near Krakow. So anyway, I decided to go to Italy. So I traveled on freight trains across Germany, all the way down to the southern border. There was a prisoners of war camp, which had officers from 1939 campaign in Poland, Polish officers. They were there for, for six years. And um, the Second Polish Corps sent convoys of trucks to gradually bring everybody to Italy who wanted to go there, of course. And this time, my friend and myself decided that no matter what, we're going to go with the first convoy because some of the other officers were waiting there for, for weeks to be taken over. Now, the next convoy was supposed to be for women in our secret army because we had a large number of women, too, who were mostly both soldiers and or messengers. Anyway, we couldn't very well pretend that we are women, but this convoy also was supposed to take the library, which the uh, camp had because they were there for six years and they had both the Polish library and even the symphony orchestra. So we thought that the library might have presented some opportunity. So we started helping with loading all the books and we arranged them in that truck in such a way that there was a little niche behind one stack of books where we could hide. Unfortunately, we were discovered by the driver, so we got out, and when the driver went out, we turned around and went right back there. So finally, when the convoy started towards Italy, the commander of the convoy knew that there were some Polish soldiers, males, who came together with the women so he said, listen, now you can come out because I have to know how many food rations I have to, <laughs> to have for everybody. So we revealed ourselves, and from then on, we traveled with the girls. And we went to Italy, and I joined the Second Polish Corps. Of course, at that time, it was after the war, I expected that... Um, they possibly might arrange for university studies. In Warsaw, I had two years of mechanical engineering, so I hoped that um, they would probably arrange for some studies at Italian universities. And as it turned out to be, it actually happened. I was in my unit for a while, and then I knew that they were already arranging 
for some of the soldiers to go to Italian universities. But so far, I wasn't allowed to do that. The reason being that I was in an officer's school and um, I was more or less scheduled to be in the first place there. And my regiment commander wanted me to finish that um, officer school because that would be kind of a good thing for the regiment to have somebody finishing the first class. Now, I didn't want to be a professional soldier, so I went a wall without a permission. I went to where the commander of, the <laughs> of that um, regiment was, and imagine this unbelievable situation. A corporal was arguing with the commander of the regiment for half an hour to let me go, and finally he agreed. <laughs> so I went to the university, te Technical University of Turin, Torino, and um, I studied the third year of mechanical engineering. So within a year, or actually less than a year, I had to learn the language and pass very difficult examinations, which I did with flying colors, all of them practically at the top grades. The one way that helped me to learn the language, I got myself a, a girlfriend, Italian girlfriend, but of course I didn't abuse her in any way. So anyway, in 1946, the Polish forces had to be evacuated from Italy. So I had to go with them, of course, because I was a soldier. And we went all the way from beautiful Naples, where I climbed the Vesuvius, by the way. And incidentally, I might notice that the Vesuvius had them some of the solid lava on the side of the mountain, and they were so abrasive that I practically destroyed my army boots when I climbed it. Anyway, we went to, from Naples, Napoli, to Scotland, and I landed in Glasgow. From beautiful sunshine, I went into a very deep fog. And we went to a camp called Clay Cross. And I was waiting and waiting to go to London to continue my education. But unfortunately, it took a long time. So we decided to, my friend and myself, we decided we're going to take it in our own hands. <laughs> we went a wall, left the camp, and got to the railway station. And we found out the railway station was closed. So I said, well, what's going on? He said, oh, it's tea time. So we crossed the railway station temporarily. <laughs> anyway, we took the next train to London and uh, we found the Polish army unit there because we were still soldiers. And we started our education at the Polish University College, which was an external college 
of the University of London. It was specifically created for those soldiers who started education in Poland but couldn't finish it because of the war. So I graduated there in 1950. In the meantime, I got married uh, with a Polish girl who was liberated from the Siberian Gulag. Now, what happened was that we, when Hitler attacked Russia, the Polish government in London signed an agreement with the Russians that if they liberate the Polish people from the Siberian camps, they'll form an, form an army to fight against the Germans. And that was the only way that they could possibly get out of there. Otherwise, they would have died there. So my wife, who was 13 when she was taken there, eventually was liberated. She went to Palestine, and there she graduated from high school uh, in a high school run by nuns. They were actually French nuns, so half of the day education was in French, half of the day education was in English. So half of the day Napoleon was a hero, half of the day Napoleon was a scoundrel. <laughs> anyway, she eventually went to London, England, and we met and married. Then when I graduated from college, I got my first job with the car manufacturing company in uh, Bradford, Yorkshire. It was called Javit Company, and they were manufacturing cars for many, many years. In fact, the first car that I have seen that they made didn't even have a steering wheel. It was kind of a, a rather a rod that you used to control the wheels. Uh, but they had very, very nice relatively modern car. So what they did now at the time where I joined them was to start manufacturing a car which was actually a sports and racing car. So they took the family sedan called Javid Javelin and converted it into a sports and racing car. That, of course, required a complete redesign of the engine. And this is what I was doing there. I designed the engine for a sports and racing car. And that required, among other things, some very interesting work. First of all, it turned out to be that the crankshaft started breaking. The reason being not the overload, but the resonance. When you change the compression ratio, in the um, car, you change the forces acting on the crankshaft completely. In fact, the inertial forces at a higher speed become even higher than combustion forces. So it turned out to be that this new set of forces on the crankshaft caused some kind of a resonance. So my job was to make what they call harmonic analysis. It was 
any kind of complex curve can be presented as a sum of simple sinusoidal curves of different amplitudes and different frequencies. And the important thing was find out whether the frequency corresponding to the natural frequency of vibration of the crankshaft was actually high amplitude. In other words, if it was a predominant force acting on the crankshaft. So that was my job. I also had to redesign the valve springs, the valves and everything else and the crank camshaft, which operates the valves, because of the much higher speed. So that was a very interesting work. And what was rather interesting is the fact that a car made in 1950, where I was there, is here in Pittsburgh. It belongs to a friend of mine. Really? A car that and you it's made? it's a beautiful car, and it's actually very modern, even by today's standards. It was um, a tubular frame. It was a flat four engine with uh, aluminum block. It had um, aircraft type shock absorbers, and some of them had even, uh, it had, uh, instead of springs on the wheels, it had torsion bars, and some of the cars even had aluminum body. And in fact, one of these cars, which I mentioned, which is in Pittsburgh, was exhibited at the exhibition of um, vintage cars, British cars. There were about 300 cars uh, here in Pittsburgh. And um, my car, Javid Javelin, got the first in class and the first in show. So the owner of that car, my friend, got actually two prizes, which was very nice. The name of the car is Javit Jupiter. It's J-O-W-E-T-T, and the name, this is the name of the company. And Jupiter is the name of the, uh, this particular model. So anyway, I worked there only for one year because at that time Canada opened the immigration for people who would work not only on the farms as required before, but also in other professions. So my wife and myself decided to emigrate to Canada, which we did, and um, we came to Toronto and started looking for a place to stay. Eventually, my wife, who was a secretary at that time, got a job with Toronto Daily Star, which was the biggest Toronto newspaper. And she was secretary of the engineering manager of that uh, newspaper. At that time, they were building a new rotogravure building in other words, a place to print the weekly um, magazine. And she had to deal with a number of, um, of course, technical terms. And there was another problem. She was used to take dictation in shorthand from 
people speaking with English accent. Now, her boss had American accent. So at one time she heard that there will be ducks going up the wall, along the ceiling, and into president's office. Turned out to be that there were air conditioning ducts. <laughs> but for a while she was surprised. <laughs> anyway, at that time I was looking for a job and I was really depressed because I spent about one month going from place to place and I couldn't get any job anywhere. The reason was, among other things, that it was July. Everybody was on vacation, nobody was hiring, and so on and so forth. I applied, among other places, to Ontario Hydro, Hydroelectric Power Commission of Ontario, which um, was the big utility in Ontario. And I didn't know that they actually wanted to hire me, but they wrote inquiry to England to find out the references for me. And it took about a month before they got the answer. So after a month, I got that job. And I um, work for Ontario Hydro Research Center. I worked on a problem of self-excited aerodynamic vibration of overhead conductor lines, which is basically a problem in aerodynamics. So um, what happens if there is a freezing rain, the rain causes formation of ice profiles on high voltage lines, you know, the ones on big towers, and um, sometimes a profile is aerodynamically unstable. Imagine that the profile looks like an airplane wing. When a wind blows, that airplane wing starts going up and down because of the upward force. And sometimes this vibration can be very high amplitude up to about 40 feet, and that time the different phases, in the three phases, different phases can touch and spark and, and the whole thing goes off. So that is something which we investigated to find out what is really happening. I worked there for five years and then in 1956, I joined the company supplying Pauline hardware to Ontario Hydro. Pauline hardware is a hardware that goes on transmission lines and uh, telephone lines. There were about 500 items. I joined the company as a mechanical engineer, but it I also was in charge of a small laboratory where several technicians were testing the incoming material and uh, the projects on which we worked. And they also had a metallurgical microscope there. So they prepared a specimen to look at it under the microscope, which required cutting, polishing, etching, and so on. 
And they put it on a microscope. I looked at it. I didn't have a faintest idea what I'm looking at because as a mechanical engineer, I didn't know much about metallurgy. Anyway, turned out to be that there was there a janitor that wiped the floor, swept, swept the floor in a lab. And he was with the company for 40 years. He came over, looked through the microscope and said, looks like 1010 steel, doesn't it? I said, oh yes, of course, it is 1010 steel. I didn't have a faintest idea what it was. So I started taking courses in metallurgy all over the place and particularly the course offered by American Society for Metals, which was the, or is actually, an organization of uh, metallurgists. And I joined the ASM, which now is called ASM International. So at this time, I am a life member of ASM. And in fact, I got from them a, a very prestigious award called E.C. Bain Award for my lifetime achievements. But let's go back. When I learned metallurgy, I became a plant metallurgist in that plant, and that was a very good experience. I worked there for about nine years, and then I got to be 40 years old. When you are 40 years old, you go through a so-called 40-year crisis. Some people leave their wives, some people change their professions. In my case, I decided that I want to be a doctor. I want to get a doctorate in metallurgy. So I went to the University of Hamilton, Ontario, McMaster University, because the company I worked was in Hamilton, Ontario. And for the first two years, I worked full-time at two courses at night. Second two years, I worked half-time in two courses um, half-time. And the last two years, I had to be full-time at the university for two reasons. First of all, they required a residency. Secondly, I wouldn't have been able to finish my project if I was still working outside. My thesis was determination of the diffusivity of oxygen in monoclinic zirconia. It is, sounds actually like a project in ceramics, which it was, but the reason for it was that diffusion of oxygen, in other words, move of oxygen through zirconia was a controlling factor in corrosion of zirconium metal, which is used extensively in nuclear plants. So that's the reason why I did it. Well, the equipment was breaking. I was nearing the six years, and they said that the university is six years the maximum that you can stay working on your PhD. Finally, everything came together, and I finished the project with flying colors. 
and uh, I got my PhD and couldn't get a job in Canada. So I decided to come to the United States, which I did. The year was 1967. I joined the... Uh, Youngstown Steel Company in Youngstown, Ohio. I was in charge of a small group working in the research center, which was actually located in Boardman, Ohio, which is a suburb of, of Youngstown. And I lived in a suburb of Youngstown called Poland, of all places. So whenever I went to Canada, they asked me, where were you born? I said, in Poland. Where do you live? In Poland. <laughs> so anyway, I was there for, I was there for about um, five years. At the same time, on a part-time basis, I was teaching metallurgy at the Anxon State University. And then the company shut down research and I had to look for a new job. The university offered me a position, teaching position, but Westinghouse gave me about twice as much money. So guess where I went? So I was 40 years old at the time, pardon me, 50 years old at that time. I had a wife and four kids and no job. So I got a job with Westinghouse in Pittsburgh and I worked for Westinghouse Research for 30 years until I was 80. I worked in a field that is called failure analysis. To explain what it is, is that when the shuttle, space shuttle crashed, a group of experts converged on it and to find out why it happened, what happened, why it happened, and how to prevent it in the future. And this is called failure analysis. And this is what I did for Westinghouse for 30 years. And I enjoyed every day of it because it was kind of a detective work, a new project every time, and new thing to work on. And I just loved it. As a matter of fact, being there, I had a lot of successes. And here again is what I mentioned before, that the good Lord has been taking care of me. The Holy Spirit guided me to the places where I could find answers to different pro problems, and I was able to handle them very successfully. So I got a, a number of awards from Westinghouse, and um, I even had the situation where the gears, which were surface hardened, we call them night riding, made for the um, robotic division of Westinghouse started breaking. And they sent me these gears to um, examine and, and decide what was happening and how to prevent it. And that time the plant had to shut down because practically every robot uses gears. So they were very anxious to have the answer to it. Well, the good Lord guided me to a place where I could find an answer to it. And I was able to solve the problem in one and a half day. 
and they were so impressed that the next time they put my picture and the story in the quarterly report to Westinghouse shareholders. Anyway, I finally retired from Westinghouse at the age of 80 in 2001, and now I have been retired very happily. But thank God I have a very good health. I don't have any arthritis. Because of that, I can run up and down our stairs because we have a two-story house probably 20 times a day. It doesn't bother me at all. And that keeps my heart in a very good shape. So when I went to my cardiologist, he said, after very thorough testing of my heart, he said, you don't need me anymore. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I don't have any pain of any kind. I only have some minor things like um, prostate cancer. However, my cancer has been under control in remission for the last about seven years. I take regularly some injections for it. And thank God that my PSA, that's prostate-specific antigens, which is a control of activity of the prostate, has been at 0.3. Nominally, it shouldn't be any more than 4, which would indicate that the cancer is active again. So again, God has been really keeping me in good shape. And I have a wonderful wife. She is so sweet and so nice that I am happier now that I have have ever been in my entire life. Well, tell everybody who your wife is. <laughs> what is your wife's name? My wife's name is Margareta, and she's actually sitting here. <laughs> <laughs> she graduated in voice from Carnegie Mellon. She had a beautiful singing voice. You live in Natrona Heights? I live in Natrona Heights. It's very interesting because um, Margareta was previously married, and so was I. In other words, I'm a recycled husband, and she's a recycled wife. And um, her husband, who was um, director of research for Allegheny Ludlam Steel Company, and um, <clears throat> uh, my wife and myself, Wanda, my wife and myself, were very good friends. We were friends as couples. In fact, Wanda and myself are godparents of Margareta's youngest son, who is now a PhD, has a PhD from Stanford University. Anyway, after uh, Jerry left Margareta for his secretary, and my wife left me, we got together and we're now very, very happy. Now, my mission in life to a degree, after retirement, is to make people laugh. So I tell them all kinds of jokes. For instance, there is a story, which was actually a true story, about a girl who stayed in a hotel that had a flat roof. And it was a beautiful sunny day, so she decided to do some sunbathing. And since there was no one around, she took her cloth off completely because she wanted to get a uniform done. Then she heard some steps coming, so she very quickly put on her clothes. It turned out to be it was employee of the hotel. 
He said, I'm sorry, lady, you cannot sunbathe here. He says, why not? He said, because you are lying on the skylight of the main dining room. <laughs> there was another story of, um, actually, again, a true story of an army base somewhere in the United States, which had an office there. And the secretary in the office had a photocopying machine. And the soldiers were using that photocopying machine to copy their own personal documents. And the officer in charge of that office didn't like it. So he put a big notice there. Troops are not allowed to tamper with our secretary's reproductive equipment <laughs> without the permission of an officer in charge. Wow. Andrew, boy, what a life you've lived. I'll tell you. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences with the Alakiski Chronicle podcast. I'm sure our community will love to hear this episode and hear about your life. So thank you so much for being here. And Well, you're quite welcome. As I say, it was a pleasure for me. You are listening to a production of the Social Voice Podcast Network.